A 4.6% across-the-board pay raise for federal employees is inching forward for 2023. The House passed the Financial Services and General Government Spending Bill, which let the White House request be. And the Senate just released its draft spending bill, which also reinforces that 4.6% pay raise. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke to John Hatton, the staff vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, on what it all means. Congress being silent would allow the president's pay raise to go through. The next step in the process is the president will issue an alternative pay plan that needs to be done by the end of August. So that typically comes out kind of like the last week of August. That's a letter to Congress signaling what the pay raise would be. And that pretty much puts it set in stone, at least on the across the board pay raise. It is then put into place officially via an executive order at the end of December. But the next step in the process, you know, the first step was the president's budget, which indicated a 4.6% average pay increase. The budget did not specify between locality pay and across the board, but the across the board should be based on the change in private sector wages and salaries from the most recent change uh, prior to the creation of the budget. Uh, So that's probably going to be 4.1% and then a 0.5% average locality pay increase is what I think people should expect. So if Congress doesn't say anything, the president's alternative pay plan goes into effect. We're also seeing that House Democrats are pushing for a little bit higher of a pay raise at 5.1%. What seems most likely to you at this point? I still think the 4.6% is the most likely scenario. The only way I see that going above that is if there's also some increase in military pay. The 4.6 is kind of what the expected military pay raise would be as well. That there's been some rumblings at one point with inflation going so high. You know, I think the most recent annual increase in inflation was 83 or 8.6%. So that's significantly above that 4.6% amount. If there is a push for an increase in the military pay raise, you may see uh, also a push for a similar increase in the federal pay raise as well. But one, you could have a scenario where just the military pay raise goes above, or you could have a scenario where neither of them go above 4.6. But if there is a scenario in which it's more than 4.6, I think it's because it's keeping pace with whatever the military one goes. Just talking a little bit more broadly about the House Appropriations Spending Bill, it also included some language about Office of Personnel Management's retirement services system. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of that being included? And what are some of the concerns that you commonly hear from federal employees looking to retire? So there was report language, so it's in the committee's report. So it's not the same binding language as in the bill, but it's strong suggestions from the Appropriations Committee that an agency do something. And and this was an expansion on previous report language. So there had been language previously that required some reporting to the Appropriations Committee on how OPM was doing processing claims on a number of different levels. But two new things in this was, you know, more frequent briefings and also also reporting things publicly on the website. And actually, a third was also reporting call wait times and unanswered calls. So that is consistent in terms of what needs attention from our perspective. You know, this has been a longstanding kind of problem where it's kind of an outdated paper-based system that needs modernization. But at different times, OPM has been able to keep the kind of the backlog within certain standards. It's starting to tick up. The other thing, while they've introduced a new call center, we had not seen improvements. Actually, we had heard from our members that things were getting worse in terms of getting through to OPM. That seems to exacerbate other problems in terms of getting transactions processed. So one of the things we had particularly heard is we, we had a number of members who 
were having long delays in getting their survivor annuity. So they will call OPM. They will report the death of their spouse, who's the federal retiree. OPM is very quick to stop that annuity. Then they're going without any income, though they're due that survivor annuity income, until OPM then authorizes and starts that survivor annuity. We've heard people waiting as long as six months for that to happen. You know, it may be that OPM needs something like a marriage certificate. Now, they might have had that in the initial application, but they're not tying the two together. But if you can't even get through to OPM and get them on the phone, and say, what do I need to fix this? Or what documents do you need? Uh, what's missing? Why, you know, what is the problem here? If you can't even get in touch with them, then you're not going to be able to fix that issue. So being able to call, email, get a response from OPM could actually help some of those other processing issues. So hopefully a little bit more oversight from Congress on these issues, a little bit more attention can help improve things. You know, OPM has also asked for additional call center staff, so it's clear they recognize some of these problems. So hopefully they'll also be able to hire up and improve some of those those issues as well. Something that is talked about pretty regularly is a federal employee retirement wave, so just more feds hitting retirement age. Is that something where you could anticipate potentially the OPM retirement services issues getting worse? We've been hearing about a retirement wave for a long time, and it seems to continue to go at a steady pace but not be completely overwhelming. But if ever it really does kind of fall down and crash, yeah, that could be a lot worse than it currently is. OPM does more than just process initial claims. They also have to process kind of other transactions for people's benefits as well. So any strain on one part of that system may affect the other parts of the system as well. People changing their health benefits or changing their FEGLI options, that's their group life insurance options, things like that, and having delays affect people as well. So kind of across the board, and it could affect OPM too. You know, if the people that work at OPM Retirement Services that have the knowledge to process these claims, which can be very complex because of the different levels and systems within the retirement system, if they start retiring, then you have issues there too. Something else that we've seen recently is the Equal COLA Act that would essentially affect the cost of living adjustments between federal employees' retirement system and the civil service retirement system. What exactly would that legislation mean for feds who are under the FERS system? It's simple um, in the in the fact that the FERS retirees, when there is a change in consumer prices above 2%, the cost of living adjustment does not equal that change. For CSRS retirees and for Social Security beneficiaries, it does. For example, in 2022, CSRS got a 5.9% COLA, FERS got a 4.9%. So this Equal COLA Act would basically just change that. So the FERS COLA would be 5.9%. And in any future year, you know, in 2023, there's also going to be a higher cost of living adjustment due to high inflation. And so FERS will see, under current laws, FERS retirees will see a 1% reduction in their cost of living adjustment. Again, Equal Coal Act would remedy that. This bill has gotten increased co-sponsors in the House over last Congress. It's up to uh, more than 30. I think it was under 20 last Congress, so a little bit of momentum there. There was a bill introduced in the Senate earlier this year as well, which there had not been one introduced last Congress. So Progress is being made, but I wouldn't. I do not see passage of this bill in either house being imminent. And that's Staff Vice President John Hatton of the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, 
beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and 
focus more on the people than than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Ladies and gentlemen, we need you. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is looking for you to help support veterans, help with youth scholarships, and be a force in your community. Being a member of the Elks is where you can do all this and much more. We are 31 lodges strong across the state of Iowa. Help pass on our principles of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity. If interested, go to elks.org and use the lodge locator to find a lodge near you. Elks care. Elks share. Brought to you by the Iowa Elks Association.